This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I pulled my truck into the clearing, gravel crunching under the tires like the sound of a campfire. The fire tower loomed above the trees, a skeletal structure that seemed both out of place and yet perfectly suited for this isolated patch of wilderness. I killed the engine and sat there for a moment, taking in the silence that only nature can offer. It was a silence that spoke volumes, filled with the whispers of the wind through the pines and the distant calls of nocturnal creatures waking to their dark world. I grabbed my gear and locked the truck. As I approached the base of the tower, I noticed a small, weather-beaten shed nearby. The door creaked open and out stepped Jim, the ranger I was relieving. He was a grizzled man, his face etched with lines that told stories of years spent under the sun and against the wind. Evening, he greeted, extending a hand roughened by years of labor. You must be the new guy. That's me. I said, shaking his hand. First night on the tower. Jim's eyes narrowed slightly, as if measuring me up, weighing my metal. Well, it's not a job for everyone. Gets lonely up there, and quiet, too quiet sometimes. I think I can handle it, I replied, a hint of youthful arrogance coloring my words. Jim chuckled, a low, rumbling sound like distant thunder. We'll see. Here, he said, handing me a small, tattered manual. Read this. It's got some rules you'll need to follow. I glanced at the manual. It looked like something from a bygone era, its pages yellowed and corners dog-eared. Rules? Yeah, Jim said, his voice dropping a notch. Important ones. Don't ignore them. I flipped open the manual and skimmed through the list. Do not leave the tower. Turn off all lights between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. Do not answer the radio during this hour. The rules read like a cross between standard operating procedures and superstitious folklore. Are these for real? I asked. Skepticism lacing my voice. Jim locked eyes with me, and for a moment I saw something there. A flicker of earnestness, a shadow of concern. Deadly real, he said. You'd do well to remember them. I nodded, not fully convinced, but not willing to dismiss him outright. All right, I'll keep them in mind. Good, Jim said, clapping me on the back. You've got the radio if you need anything, but remember, no calls between two and three. That's your time to be vigilant. With that cryptic advice... Jim headed toward his truck, leaving me standing there with the manual in hand. I watched him drive off, his taillights disappearing into the darkening forest, and then turned my attention to the tower. Taking a deep breath, I began my ascent, each step echoing with a metallic clang that shattered the natural silence. When I reached the top, I unlocked the hatch and stepped into the cabin. It was a small, utilitarian space equipped with the basics, 
radio, binoculars, a first aid kit, and a bed. I set my gear down and took a seat, flipping on the radio and adjusting the binoculars. As the sun dipped below the horizon, painting the sky with hues of orange and purple, I felt a sense of isolation envelop me, as if the tower were an island in a sea of darkness. And so, my vigil began. I had no idea then how crucial those strange rules would become, how they would test the very limits of my sanity and courage. But for now, I was alone, perched high above the world, a guardian in a tower of secrets and silence. And I was ready, or so I thought. The night settled in like a heavy blanket, the kind that smothers you in its weight. I leaned back in the chair, my eyes scanning the dark expanse of forest through the binoculars. The radio buzzed with occasional chatter, mostly mundane updates from other rangers or weather reports. I had the manual open beside me, its list of rules a curious distraction. I chuckled to myself. Too quiet sometimes, Jim had said. Well, quiet was part of the job description, wasn't it? It was around midnight when the first oddity occurred. A soft glow appeared in the distance, like a campfire that had learned to float. It hovered over the trees, casting an eerie luminescence that seemed to pulse. I squinted, trying to make sense of it. Then I remembered rule four. Do not look at any glowing lights in the forest. I quickly averted my gaze, a chill running down my spine. What kind of place was this? I shook off the unease, attributing it to first night jitters. I reached for the radio, intending to check in, when a static-laden voice broke through. Ranger Tower 6, do you copy? The voice was distorted, almost robotic. I picked up the radio. This is Tower 6, go ahead. The voice crackled again, all clear, over. Something about the transmission didn't sit right with me. It was too emotionless. I glanced at the manual again, half expecting to find a rule about not trusting the radio. There wasn't one. But Rule 3 did say not to answer the radio between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. I checked the clock. It was only midnight, but the rule suddenly seemed less arbitrary. I decided to step outside onto the platform for some fresh air, thinking it might clear my head. The wind had picked up, rustling the leaves and carrying with it the earthy scent of the forest. I leaned against the railing, looking out into the darkness. That's when I heard it, a low growl coming from the trees below. It was a guttural sound, filled with menace and intent. My hand instinctively went to the flare gun hanging by the door. Rule 5. If you hear an animal in distress, do not go outside. Instead, fire a flare. But this didn't sound like an animal in distress. This sounded like a predator, one that knew exactly what it was doing. I stood there, my senses heightened, every nerve tingling with anticipation. The growl came again, closer this time, followed by the snap of twigs and the rustle of underbrush. Something was moving down there, something big. I backed into the cabin and locked the door, my eyes darting to the manual. I had scoffed at the rules earlier, dismissing them as the ramblings of superstitious minds. But now, alone in this tower, surrounded by an impenetrable darkness that seemed to close in with each passing minute, I felt a creeping realization. The rules were there for a reason, and as the clock ticked closer to the forbidden hour, I couldn't shake the feeling that I was about to find out why. The clock on the wall seemed to tick louder as the minutes crawled by, each second stretching into an eternity. I had returned to my seat, my eyes now darting between the binoculars and the manual. The radio sat silent, as if holding its breath along with me. 
I couldn't shake the feeling that the forest was watching, waiting for me to make a mistake. It was then that I heard it, a high-pitched wail echoing through the trees like a siren's call. The sound was gut-wrenching, filled with agony and despair. My first instinct was to grab my flashlight and head out, but then I remembered Rule 5. If you hear an animal in distress, do not go outside. Instead, fire a flare. I hesitated, my hand hovering over the door handle. The wail came again, more desperate this time as if pleading for help. My heart pounded in my chest, every fiber of my being screaming to go out there and do something. But the rules, those damn rules, they were etched into my mind now, each one a warning, a boundary not to be crossed. With a sense of resignation, I reached for the flare gun. I loaded it, stepped onto the platform, and aimed it skyward. As I pulled the trigger, the flare shot up into the night, its red light painting the sky like a brushstroke of fire. For a moment, the forest was bathed in a crimson glow, and I held my breath, waiting for whatever would come next. What happened then was beyond explanation. Another light appeared in the sky, mimicking the flare's trajectory. It hovered for a moment before descending into the forest, its glow extinguishing as suddenly as it had appeared. I stood there stunned, my mind struggling to process what I had just witnessed. It was as if the forest had responded, had mimicked my action in a grotesque display of mockery. I retreated into the cabin, my hands trembling as I locked the door behind me. I sank into the chair, my eyes fixed on the manual. Rule 5 had saved me from stepping outside. But what had I just invited in? What kind of place was capable of such unnatural phenomena? I picked up the radio, my fingers hovering over the dial. I wanted to call for help, to hear another human voice, to be told that everything was going to be alright. But then I remembered Rule 3. Do not answer the radio between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. I glanced at the clock. It was 1.45 a.m. The forbidden hour was approaching and I was running out of time. As I sat there, contemplating my next move, I realized that the rules were more than just guidelines. They were lifelines, each one a key to survival in a place that defied logic and reason. And as the clock ticked closer to 2 a.m., I couldn't help but wonder what other horrors awaited me, what other rules I would be forced to follow. But for now, all I could do was wait, my eyes fixed on the clock, my mind racing with thoughts and fears. And so I braced myself for the hour that was to come, the hour that the manual had ominously referred to as your time to be vigilant. And God help me, I was. The clock struck 2 a.m., its chimes echoing in the small cabin like a funeral dirge. I reached for the light switch and hesitated, my fingers trembling. Rule 2. Turn off all lights between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. I took a deep breath and flicked the switch, plunging the room into darkness. My eyes strained to adjust, but it was a darkness so complete, it felt like being swallowed by a black hole. I sat there, my back against the wall, my senses heightened to a razor's edge. The radio sat silent on the table, its mute form a grim reminder of Rule 3. Do not answer the radio during this hour. I glanced at the manual, its pages now invisible in the dark, but its rules etched into my memory like commandments on stone tablets. The wind howled outside, its mournful cries weaving through the trees like the wails of lost souls. I strained my ears, listening for any sound that might break the oppressive silence. And then I heard it. Footsteps. Slow, deliberate footsteps crunching on the gravel below the tower. My heart pounded in my chest, 
each beat a drum roll of dread. I thought of reaching for the flare gun, but what good would it do in this darkness? And who or what was I up against? My mind raced through the possibilities, each more terrifying than the last. Was it a person, defying the rules for some nefarious purpose? Or was it something else, something that called this dark forest its home? The footsteps grew louder, ascending the metal stairs with a rhythmic clang that sent shivers down my spine. I held my breath, my eyes darting to the door, half expecting it to burst open at any moment. But it didn't. The footsteps reached the top of the stairs and then... Silence. A silence so complete it felt like the world had stopped breathing. Minutes ticked by, each one an eternity of anticipation and fear. I dared not move, dared not make a sound, as if my very breath could shatter this fragile moment. And then, as suddenly as it had started, the silence was broken. A scratching sound, like nails on a chalkboard, reverberated through the room. It was coming from the door, from just outside the door. I clenched my fists, my nails digging into my palms, my body taut like a bowstring. The scratching continued, each stroke a violation, an intrusion into this sanctuary I had thought impregnable, and then, just as suddenly, it stopped. The room fell silent again, the tension lifting like a fog, leaving in its wake a sense of relief so profound, it felt like a physical weight being lifted off my shoulders. I glanced at the clock. It was 3 a.m. The forbidden hour had passed. With a sense of disbelief, I reached for the light switch and flicked it on. The room was bathed in light, its familiar contours a stark contrast to the darkness that had enveloped it just moments ago. I was alone, but the sense of isolation had been replaced by something else, a realization that I was not alone in this forest, that I was a guest in a world governed by rules I could neither understand nor ignore. And as I sat there, my eyes fixed on the manual, I couldn't help but wonder what the next rule would bring, what the next hour would hold. But for now, all I could do was wait and listen, and hope that whatever had visited me during that forbidden hour would not return. But deep down, I knew it was only a matter of time. The clock read 3.15 a.m., and the cabin was once again a sanctuary of light and normalcy, or as normal as it could be, given the night's events. I had just begun to entertain the notion that the worst was behind me when the radio crackled to life. Ranger Tower 6, do you copy? The voice was clear, human, and filled with a sense of urgency that sent a jolt through my spine. I picked up the radio, my hand still trembling from the adrenaline of the past hour. This is Tower 6. Go ahead. Thank God, the voice exhaled. I'm Ranger Mike Thompson. I've been trying to reach you. I need to come up. Can you unlock the door? My fingers hovered over the lock, ready to comply, when a flicker of doubt crossed my mind. Rule 6. If someone claims to be a ranger and asks to be let in, ask for their full name and badge number. Can you confirm your badge number, Mike? I asked, my voice tinged with caution. There was a pause, a momentary lapse that filled the airwaves with static and uncertainty. Badge number 4579, he finally replied. I was about to unlock the door when another transmission broke through, this one weak and filled with static. Don't let in, the voice sputtered, barely audible over the crackling airwaves. My heart sank. The voice was distorted, but the message was clear. I pulled my hand away from the lock, my body frozen in a state of indecision. Who is this? I demanded, my voice rising in pitch. No answer came, but what followed was worse. A gut-wrenching scream that tore through the radio, filling the cabin with its echo of pure terror. 
Then, silence. I sat there, the radio now a heavy weight in my hands, my mind racing with questions and fears. Had I just heard a man die? And what had he been trying to warn me about? I backed away from the door, my eyes fixed on its sturdy frame as if expecting it to betray me. I thought of the scratching sounds from earlier, the footsteps on the stairs, the rules that had become my lifelines in this night of unimaginable horror, and I realized, with a sense of dread, that the rules had not been written to protect me from the forest. They had been written to protect me from what lived within it. I sank to the floor, my body trembling, my mind a whirlpool of thoughts and emotions. I had been so close to letting whatever it was into this sanctuary, so close to breaking the one rule that might have cost me my life. As I sat there, my eyes fixed on the clock, I knew that the night was far from over, that the rules would be tested again, that my sanity and courage would be pushed to their very limits. But for now, all I could do was wait, my eyes darting between the door and the radio, my ears straining for any sound that might pierce the silence. And so, I waited, my body curled into a ball on the floor, my mind a fortress preparing for the next siege. And God help me, it came. The first rays of dawn filtered through the windows, casting long shadows across the cabin. I had survived the night, but at what cost? My body felt like a wrung-out rag, my mind a labyrinth of questions with no answers. I glanced at the clock, 6.30 a.m. The night was over, but its echoes still reverberated through my soul. I heard the distant rumble of engines and looked out to see a convoy of vehicles approaching. Emergency medical technicians, park rangers, and what looked like a couple of unmarked SUVs. They pulled up to the base of the tower, and people began to spill out. Their movements hurried, their faces etched with concern and curiosity. I unlocked the door and began my descent, each step a reminder of the night's terrors. As I reached the ground, a pair of EMTs rushed over, their eyes scanning me for injuries. Are you okay? One of them asked, her voice tinged with professional concern. I'm not sure, I replied, my voice barely above a whisper. They led me to an ambulance where they checked my vitals and shone a light into my eyes. You're in shock, the EMT said, but otherwise you seem okay. Okay, I thought. I'm far from okay. A park ranger approached, his face stern, his eyes searching. We're going to need a statement, he said. I looked at him, my mind wrestling with the decision. Could I tell them what had happened? Would they even believe me? And what about the rules, the manual that had become my Bible in that godforsaken tower? I can't explain, I finally said, my voice tinged with defeat. The ranger stared at me for a long moment, then nodded. All right, you're free to go, but we'll need to talk eventually. I nodded and walked away my eyes catching sight of a group of rangers examining the base of the tower. They were collecting something, shell casings, spots of blood, evidence of a night that defied explanation. I climbed into my truck and started the engine, my hands gripping the wheel as if it were a lifeline. As I drove away, I glanced in the rearview mirror and saw the tower receding in the distance, its skeletal frame now a monument to a night I would never forget. And then I saw it, a deer, standing at the edge of the clearing, its eyes meeting mine in a moment of shared recognition. As I passed, I noticed something that made my blood run cold. The deer had a shred of a ranger's patch impaled on one of its antlers 
and its nose and mouth were stained with what looked like blood. I pressed the accelerator and didn't look back, my eyes fixed on the road ahead, my mind a whirlpool of thoughts and fears. I had survived the night, but the questions remained, each one a haunting reminder of a world that existed beyond the boundaries of reason and logic. And as I drove away, leaving behind a tower of secrets and a forest of nightmares, I knew that some questions were better left unanswered, some rules better left unbroken, and some places better left unvisited. The city lights appeared on the horizon like a distant galaxy, a stark contrast to the inky darkness of the forest I had left behind. My truck ate up the miles, but my mind was still trapped in that tower, in that night of unimaginable horror. I had made it out, but the scars were etched deep, not just on my soul, but on the very fabric of my understanding of the world. I had already made up my mind. I was quitting the ranger service. The city offered anonymity, a refuge of concrete and steel where the rules of nature didn't include cryptic manuals and unspoken horrors. I could find a job, maybe go back to school. Anything to escape the memories, the questions, the rules. As I pulled into my driveway, the weight of the past hours seemed to lift slightly. Home, safety, normalcy. I killed the engine and sat there for a moment, gathering the strength to step out, to cross the threshold into my old life. That's when I saw it, the manual lying on the passenger seat, its pages now dog-eared and stained with the sweat and fear of the night. Rule six flashed through my mind. If someone claims to be a ranger and asks to be let in, ask for their full name and badge number. I grabbed the manual and stepped out of the truck, my eyes scanning the quiet suburban street, half expecting to see a figure lurking in the shadows. But there was nothing. I was alone. I unlocked the front door and stepped inside, the familiarity of my home wrapping around me like a warm blanket. I tossed the manual onto the kitchen table and headed for the shower, desperate to wash away the grime and fear of the past hours. As the hot water cascaded over me, I felt my muscles relax the tension draining away like water down the drain. And for a moment, just a moment, I allowed myself to believe that it was over, that I had escaped. That's when I heard it, a knock on the door. Three slow, deliberate knocks that cut through the sound of the shower like a knife through flesh. My heart stopped, my blood turning to ice in my veins. I turned off the shower and stepped out, my eyes darting to the bathroom window. It was dark outside, the world shrouded in a cloak of night that seemed to stretch into eternity. I wrapped a towel around me and crept to the kitchen, my eyes falling on the manual, its presence now a mocking reminder of the world I had left behind, but that had not left me. Another knock, louder this time, more insistent. I approached the door, my body trembling, my mind screaming at me to run, to hide, to escape. But there was no escape, not from this. I looked through the peephole and saw a figure standing outside, its features obscured by the darkness. And then it spoke, its voice a chilling whisper that seeped through the door like a malevolent mist. Ranger, let me in. It's safe now. My hand hovered over the lock, my breath caught in my throat, my soul teetering on the edge of an abyss from which there was no return. And then I remembered the final unwritten rule, the one that now filled me with a terror beyond words beyond comprehension. Some rules are meant to be broken, but some doors are meant to stay closed. Forever. 
Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I've been a park ranger at Yosemite for a good chunk of my life. Most folks think it's all about chasing down poachers or rescuing lost hikers. Don't get me wrong, that happens. But most days it's more like being a tour guide with a badge. You answer questions, give directions, and sometimes play referee between nature and those who think they can conquer it with a selfie stick. The park is a place of contrasts. One minute you're marveling at the grandeur of El Capitan, and the next... You're dealing with some city slicker who thinks it's a good idea to feed a bear. Yeah, a bear. As if those claws and teeth were just for show. But it's not all headaches and face palms. There are moments that make you laugh so hard you forget you're wearing a uniform. Like the time I stumbled upon a group of grown adults dressed as forest animals, frolicking around like they were auditioning for a Disney movie. They scattered the moment they saw me, their fake tails bobbing through the underbrush. I couldn't decide whether to write a report or a comedy sketch. Then there are the moments that stick with you, the ones that don't make it into the brochures. I remember a night under a sky so clear it felt like you could reach out and pluck the stars. I was sharing that silence with a family who had never seen the Milky Way before. The awe in their eyes, that's the stuff that keeps you going. But let's get one thing straight. Yosemite is not just another patch of earth. It's a living, breathing entity. It has its moods, its secrets, and sometimes, just sometimes, it swallows people whole. You hear stories, whispers really, about hikers who go missing without a trace. Most times they turn up, a little embarrassed, but none the worse for wear. Other times, well, let's just say not every story has a happy ending. That's why when the call came in about a missing hiker on the Cathedral Lake Trail, I figured it was business as usual. A guy named Greg was on the line, all frantic, saying his brother Dave had vanished into thin air. Now I've heard that phrase a lot, but the tremor in Greg's voice told me this was different. He mentioned something about other mysterious disappearances, as if Yosemite had suddenly turned into the Bermuda Triangle of National Parks. I sighed, put on my hat, and grabbed my gear. This was no time for skepticism. If someone was lost, it was my job to find them no matter what lurked in the hidden corners of this majestic but unforgiving landscape. As I headed out, I couldn't shake the feeling that this was more than just another rescue mission. Yosemite was stirring, and I was about to step into one of its untold stories. Little did I know, this one would be unlike any other. The Cathedral Lake Trail is one of those places that can make you forget you're in the 21st century. No cell service, no Wi-Fi, just you in the wilderness. It's a place that demands respect, and most people give it. But every now and then, someone thinks they can outsmart nature. That's usually when I get a call. I pulled up to the trailhead in my Ranger SUV, dust billowing behind me like a bad omen. Greg was pacing near the signboard, his face flushed and eyes wide. He looked like he'd seen a ghost, or worse. Greg! I called out as I stepped out of the vehicle. He turned, relief washing over his face. Oh, thank God you're here. It's Dave, my brother. He's gone. Just vanished. 
I motioned for him to calm down. Start from the beginning. What happened? We were hiking, just like we've done a hundred times. I stopped to tie my shoe, and when I looked up, he was gone. Just gone, man. I eyed him skeptically. People get lost here all the time. He probably wandered off the trail. He'll turn up. Greg shook his head vehemently. No, you don't understand. I've heard stories, man. People go missing in places like this, and they never come back. What if that's what happened to Dave? I sighed. Yosemite had its share of myths and legends, but this was no time for campfire stories. Look, I understand you're worried, but let's stick to the facts. Did he have any reason to wander off? Was he acting strange? No, nothing like that. We were having a good time, and then he was just... gone. Something about the way Greg said gone sent a chill down my spine. This wasn't just another lost hiker. I could feel it. All right, let's go find your brother. I said, grabbing my pack from the SUV. We set off down the trail, Greg leading the way. The forest was eerily quiet as if holding its breath. We called out for Dave, our voices echoing through the trees, but there was no response. After about a mile, Greg stopped abruptly. This is where it happened, right here. I looked around. It was a nondescript part of the trail, no different from the miles we'd just covered, but then I noticed it. A narrow opening between the trees, like a doorway to another world. Did you check there? I pointed to the opening. Greg's face paled. No, I didn't even see it. Do you think he went in there? There was only one way to find out. I took a deep breath and stepped toward the opening. As I did, a shiver ran through me, as if I'd just crossed an invisible line. Stay close, I warned Greg. We don't know what's in there. But as I stepped into the darkness, I couldn't shake the feeling that whatever was in there already knew all about us, and it was waiting. The forest has a way of swallowing sound, making each step feel like a solitary journey even when you're not alone. Greg followed close behind me, his breaths shallow and quick, like a hunted animal. I couldn't blame him. The atmosphere had changed. The woods felt denser, the air thicker. It was as if we'd stepped into a different realm altogether. We moved cautiously, our flashlights cutting through the darkness. Every rustle of leaves, every snap of a twig, seemed amplified, as if the forest itself was whispering warnings we couldn't understand. And then, there it was, a dark maw in the side of a hill, like a wound in the earth, a cave. Greg's flashlight flickered as he pointed it toward the entrance. Do you think he's in there? I studied the cave. It looked natural, but something about it felt off. Only one way to find out, I said, my voice betraying a hint of reluctance. Greg didn't wait for a second invitation. He rushed toward the cave, his flashlight beam dancing erratically on the walls. Dave, are you in here? I hesitated at the entrance, my instincts screaming at me to turn back. But this was my job, my responsibility. I took a deep breath and stepped inside. The cave was colder than I'd expected, the air damp and heavy. Our flashlights revealed a narrow tunnel that seemed to stretch on forever, its walls slick with moisture. I couldn't shake the feeling that we were descending into the belly of some ancient beast. We hadn't gone far when Greg stopped abruptly, his light focused on something on the ground. What's this? I moved closer and saw what had caught his attention. A shoe, caked in mud and worn from use. It looked like it had been there for a while. Is it Dave's? I asked. Greg shook his head, his face pale. No, but it could belong to someone else who went missing. What if this cave is where they all end up? The thought sent a shiver down my spine. 
Let's not jump to conclusions. We need to keep moving. But as we ventured deeper, the cave seemed to close in around us. The walls narrowed and the ceiling dropped. I felt a growing sense of unease, as if we were trespassing in a place we had no right to be. Finally, I stopped. We should go back and get more help. This could be dangerous. Greg looked at me, his eyes filled with a mix of desperation and fear. But what about Dave? What if he's in here? I understand, but we're not equipped for this. We need to be smart. Reluctantly, Greg nodded. All right, let's go. As we turned to leave, I couldn't shake the feeling that we were being watched. The cave seemed to sigh, as if disappointed. But I knew better than to let my imagination run wild. We made our way back to the entrance, the weight of the cave lifting as we stepped into the open air. But as we did, I knew that this was far from over. The cave had revealed a glimpse of its secrets, and I had a sinking feeling that it wasn't done with us yet, not by a long shot. We emerged from the cave like men reborn, the sunlight hitting our faces like a slap of reality. I radioed for backup, my voice tinged with an urgency I couldn't fully explain. Greg sat on a fallen log, his face etched with a mix of relief and dread. He knew as well as I did that we were far from solving this mystery. Within the hour, a search party arrived, armed with ropes, flashlights, and a sense of purpose. I briefed them quickly, pointing to the cave that had swallowed more than just our courage. We go in, we search, we come out. No heroics. But when I turned to lead them to the cave, my heart sank. The cave was gone. In its place, a smooth hillside, as if the earth had healed its own wound. I blinked, thinking my eyes were playing tricks on me. But no, it was gone. Vanished. The team looked at me, their faces a mix of confusion and disbelief. Where's the cave, Ranger? I had no answer. I felt like a fool, a man chasing his own tail. It was right here, I stammered, my voice tinged with doubt. Greg stood up, his eyes wide. I told you, man, this place is cursed. It swallows people, and now it swallowed the cave. The team exchanged glances, their expression saying what they didn't dare speak. Had the stress gotten to me? Was I seeing things? We'll spread out and search the area, I ordered, trying to regain some semblance of control. Maybe there's another entrance. We combed the woods for hours, our flashlights piercing the gathering dusk. We found nothing. No cave, no sign of Dave, no answers. As darkness fell, I made the call to head back. We were chasing shadows. Back at the station, I filed my report, each word a struggle. How do you document the indescribable? How do you explain the unexplainable? I considered leaving out the cave, but that would be a lie. And I was many things, but not a liar. As I handed in the report, my superior looked at me, his eyes searching for something. Sanity, perhaps. You sure about all this? I nodded, my pride swallowed by the enormity of what we'd experienced. Yes, sir. I don't expect you to believe it, but it's the truth. He sighed, setting the report aside. Get some rest. We'll pick this up in the morning. But as I drove home, the weight of the day pressing down on me, I knew there would be no rest. Not for me, not for Greg, and certainly not for whoever, or whatever, was lurking in the hidden corners of Yosemite. The cave had vanished, but the mystery had deepened, and I couldn't shake the feeling that we were all pawns in a game we couldn't begin to understand. A game that was far from over. A year had passed since the cave incident, but not a day went by that I didn't think about it. The questions, the doubts, they gnawed at me like a persistent itch I couldn't reach. I needed answers, even if it meant going against protocol, even if it meant facing whatever had driven me and Greg out of that cave. 
So I found myself back at the Cathedral Lake Trail, off-duty and heavily armed. I had a GPS, a satellite phone, and enough gear to make a prepper jealous. If the cave was there, I was going to find it. And this time, I was going in prepared. The forest greeted me like an old friend, its towering trees and rustling leaves a familiar comfort. But as I reached the spot where the cave had been, my heart sank. It was just as it had been a year ago, a smooth hillside, no sign of any opening. I was about to turn back, chalk it up to a figment of my stressed imagination, when I felt it. A subtle shift in the air, like the static before a storm. I looked again and there it was, the cave, its dark entrance like an open wound in the earth. I took a deep breath, steadying my shaking hands. This was it. I stepped inside. The cave was as I remembered it, cold, dark, and unwelcoming. But this time, I was ready. I moved cautiously, my flashlight cutting through the darkness, my other hand gripping the pistol at my side. I hadn't gone far when I saw it, the creature. It was more horrifying than I remembered, a grotesque blend of plant and animal, its tentacles writhing like snakes. And it was consuming a human face, one that looked disturbingly familiar. My heart pounded in my chest, but I held my ground. I had come for answers, and I was going to get them. As I moved deeper, I discovered the cave's other inhabitants, people, or what was left of them. They were alive but incomplete, missing arms, legs, faces, and among them, I saw him, Greg. His eyes met mine, and for a moment I saw a flicker of recognition, but then it vanished, replaced by the vacant stare of someone who was no longer fully human. I felt a wave of nausea wash over me, but I fought it back. This was bigger than me, bigger than Greg, bigger than all of us. This creature, this cave, it was an abomination, and it had to be stopped. As I turned to leave, the creature let out a guttural growl, and I felt a wave of dizziness wash over me. It was trying to hypnotize me, to add me to its collection, but I was ready. I shook off the feeling, my resolve hardened by the horrors I had witnessed. I made it to the entrance the creature's growls echoing behind me. As I stepped into the sunlight, I knew what I had to do. This cave, this creature, they couldn't be allowed to exist. I was going to seal them off, once and for all. I didn't waste any time. I drove straight to the hardware store, my mind racing faster than the engine. I bought fast-drying cement, a mixing tub, a trowel, and a few other supplies. The cashier gave me a curious look, probably wondering what kind of home improvement project required such urgency, if only he knew. As night fell, I returned to the Cathedral Lake Trail. The forest was a different beast in the dark, its familiar landmarks transformed into looming shadows. But I had no time for fear. I had a job to do. I reached the cave, its entrance like a dark scar on the earth. I mixed the cement, my hands steady despite the gravity of what I was about to do. This was it the point of no return. I started sealing the entrance, each scoop of cement a step closer to trapping the creature inside. I worked quickly, my body running on adrenaline and sheer will. I couldn't afford to make a mistake, I had to get this right. As I laid the final layer, I heard it, a guttural, inhuman shriek from deep within the cave. It was a sound of pure rage, of primal fury. It echoed through the forest, sending a shiver down my spine. The creature knew what I was doing, and it was not pleased. But then, something unexpected happened. The shriek turned into a chorus, a cacophony of voices joining in. It was as if all the souls trapped inside had realized their predicament, and were crying out in despair. 
Among those voices I thought I heard one that sounded familiar. Greg. My heart sank. I had warned him not to enter the cave, but he hadn't listened. And now, he was part of this nightmare. I'm sorry, Greg, I muttered, my voice barely a whisper. I'm so sorry. I laid the final scoop of cement, sealing the cave and its horrors inside. As I stepped back, I felt a wave of exhaustion wash over me. I had done it. The creature was trapped, its reign of terror over. But as I made my way back to the car, I couldn't shake the feeling that this was far from over. The creature was trapped, yes, but it was still alive, and as long as it lived, the threat remained. I drove home in silence, my thoughts a jumble of relief and regret. I had done my duty, done what had to be done, but at what cost? As I lay in bed that night, the events of the past year replaying in my mind, one thought kept nagging at me. Had I really solved anything, or had I merely contained it? The creature was trapped, but it was still out there lurking in the hidden corners of Yosemite, a dark secret in a place filled with natural wonders. And as I drifted off to sleep, one question haunted me. What happens when a creature with an insatiable hunger runs out of food? I didn't have an answer, and that terrified me more than anything. Days turned into weeks, and the weight of what I'd done settled in like a permanent fog. I kept up with my duties, patrolled the trails and assisted hikers, but a part of me was always back at that sealed cave. I'd done my job, protected the public from an unimaginable horror, but the cost was a burden I'd carry for the rest of my life. I avoided the Cathedral Lake Trail, made excuses to stay away, but fate has a way of pulling you back to the places you'd rather forget. A group of hikers had reported strange noises, unsettling cries that didn't belong to any animal they knew. My superior insisted I investigate. You know that area better than anyone, he said, unaware of how true that was. I arrived at the spot in the late afternoon, the sun casting long shadows through the trees. I approached the sealed cave cautiously, half expecting to find it just as I'd left it, but what I saw made my blood run cold. The cement seal was cracked, chunks of it scattered around like the aftermath of an explosion. The cave was open. A wave of dread washed over me. Had it escaped? Was it out there? Hunting? Feeding? I considered calling for backup, but what would I say? That a mythical creature had broken free? They'd think I'd lost my mind. Summoning every ounce of courage, I stepped into the cave. The air was thick, suffocating, but there was something else. A smell, sweet and rotten at the same time. I flashed my light around, my hand trembling. And then I saw them. Bodies, or what was left of them, strewn around like discarded dolls. They were drained, hollow, as if every ounce of life had been sucked out of them. Among them, I saw the creature, or rather its remains. It was shriveled, lifeless, its tentacles limp, and its eyes dull. As I stood there trying to make sense of the scene, I heard it, a soft, almost inaudible whisper. I turned around, my flashlight beam landing on a figure standing at the entrance of the cave. It was Greg, or something that looked like him. His eyes were black, soulless, and his mouth was twisted into a grotesque smile. Before I could react, he spoke, his voice a chilling monotone. You thought you could trap it, contain it, but you don't understand. It's not just a creature, it's an idea, a hunger that can't be contained, and now, it's a part of me. Before I could move, he lunged at me impossibly fast. The last thing I felt was an excruciating pain as darkness enveloped me. My final thought was a realization, a terrifying truth I'd failed to see. 
The creature was never the real horror. The real horror was what it awakened in us, what it unleashed, and that horror was now free, unbound by cave walls or cement barriers. As my consciousness faded, I understood one terrifying fact. The hunger had found a new host, and it was insatiable. I was 24, restless, and carrying the weight of a life that had already seen too many wrong turns. The city was a maze I couldn't navigate anymore, a labyrinth of mistakes and missed opportunities. So, when I saw the job posting for a park ranger position in a state park, it felt like a lifeline thrown my way. I grabbed it without a second thought. The park was a sprawling expanse of wilderness, a place where nature still held dominion, towering pines, endless trails, and the kind of quiet you can't find just anywhere. It was the kind of place where you could lose yourself, and maybe, just maybe, find something too. My duties were straightforward. Maintain the trails, assist visitors, and most importantly, keep an eye out for fires. The park had a history, you see. Old-timers would talk about the Great Fire of 76 like it was yesterday, a cautionary tale whispered around campfires. But it was the North End Watchtower that caught my attention from day one. They called it the Sentinel, a 100-foot-tall structure made of old pine. It stood there like a guardian, overlooking the park, a small cabin perched on stilts. It was as if it had sprouted from the earth itself, a part of the landscape yet apart from it. The first time I climbed those wooden stairs, each step creaking under my boots, I felt a strange mix of awe and unease. The tower was equipped with the bare essentials, a wooden chair, a table, and a single light bulb that dangled from the ceiling, swaying gently as if moved by some invisible hand. From up there, the world looked different, smaller, yet infinitely expansive. I could see the winding trails, the darkening forest, and the distant hills rolling away like waves in a frozen sea. But what I couldn't see was what lay hidden in those shadows, the secrets that the trees whispered when they thought no one was listening. The park was considered safe, a haven for families and nature enthusiasts alike. But every paradise has its serpents. We were not far from a correctional facility, and the park had its share of unwelcome visitors, criminals, squatters, and others who sought the anonymity that only a vast wilderness could provide. As I sat there in that tower, the setting sun casting long shadows that seemed to reach for me, I felt a shiver run down my spine. It wasn't just the chill of the evening air, it was the realization that I was a small, fragile piece in a much larger, unfathomable puzzle. I shook off the feeling, reminding myself that I was there to do a job. I was the eyes and ears of this place, its first line of defense. And so I settled into my chair, my gaze scanning the horizon, my hand resting on the walkie-talkie that connected me to the outside world. But as the darkness deepened, enveloping the tower and everything it stood watch over, I couldn't shake the feeling that something was watching me too. And whatever it was, it wasn't just passing through. It had been there long before me, and it had stories to tell. Stories that I wasn't sure I wanted to hear. And so began my first night at the Sentinel, a watchtower that had seen more than its share of fires, but none like the one that was about to ignite inside me. The ranger station was a modest building, a rustic cabin that served as the nerve center of the park. 
It was where we clocked in, got our assignments, and occasionally heard stories that made us question the wisdom of wandering too far off the beaten path. That evening, as I was going through the logbook, noting the day's activities and incidents, the door swung open. A woman walked in, her face flushed, eyes wide with a mix of fear and disbelief. She was in her early thirties, dressed like someone who had come to enjoy a simple hike, but had found something else entirely. Can I help you, ma'am? I asked, setting aside the logbook. I, I think someone's following me, she stammered, her voice tinged with panic. Sit down, please. Take a deep breath and tell me what happened, I said, motioning to the chair across from my desk. She sat, her hands trembling as she recounted her experience. She had been walking on the Cedar Ridge Trail, a popular route that offered stunning views of the valley. But today, she said, the beauty of the landscape was marred by something unsettling. She had heard strange noises, whistles that mimicked the calls of a wood thrush, but were too mechanical, too deliberate to be natural. And then I saw it, she continued, her voice dropping to a whisper, a shadowy figure. Just beyond the trees, it was watching me. I felt a knot tighten in my stomach. This was not the first time we had reports of suspicious activities, but something about her story struck a chord. Maybe it was the way she described the whistles, or perhaps it was the genuine fear in her eyes. We'll look into it right away, I assured her, picking up the walkie-talkie to alert the other rangers. The search yielded nothing. We combed the area, flashlights piercing through the gathering dusk, but found no signs of anyone lurking in the woods. The woman left, grateful but not entirely convinced. And who could blame her? The forest has a way of holding on to its secrets, of swallowing up traces of any transgressions. As I prepared to head out for my night shift at the Sentinel, my thoughts kept drifting back to the woman's story. I tried to shake it off, to chalk it up to an overactive imagination, or perhaps an animal that had strayed too close to the trail. But deep down, I knew better. The park was a sanctuary for many, but it was also a hiding place, a vast expanse where one could easily become predator or prey. I grabbed my gear and made my way to the tower, the woman's words echoing in my mind. I couldn't shake the feeling that her story was a harbinger of things to come, a warning sign that I couldn't afford to ignore. As I reached the base of the sentinel, I noticed something that made me stop in my tracks, a new carving on the wooden frame, a pair of eyes staring back at me. It was as if the tower itself was watching, waiting to see what I would do next. And in that moment, I realized that the night ahead would be a long one, filled with uncertainties and shadows that couldn't simply be explained away. I climbed the wooden stairs of the sentinel, each step creaking under the weight of both my boots and the apprehension that had settled in my gut. The tower loomed above me, its timbers aged by years of weather and watchfulness. It was a relic, a sentinel in the truest sense, standing guard over a wilderness that was as beautiful as it was unforgiving. Reaching the top, I unlocked the cabin door and stepped inside. The room was sparse, functional, a space designed for vigilance rather than comfort. A wooden chair, a table cluttered with maps and a radio, and that single dim light bulb hanging from the ceiling its glow more a suggestion than an illumination. I set my gear down and took a seat, my eyes instinctively scanning the horizon through the cabin's windows. The sun had dipped below the tree line, casting the world in hues of twilight. It was that in-between time, when day gives way to night, and anything seems possible. 
I picked up the walkie-talkie and checked in with the station. All clear at the Sentinel, I reported, my voice steady despite the unease that tingled at the base of my skull. Copy that, came the reply, a static-laced acknowledgement that did little to dispel the growing tension in the air. I leaned back in my chair, allowing myself a moment to breathe. That's when I saw it, a new set of carved eyes on the railing of the tower's stairs. They were crude but deliberate, etched into the wood as if to say, I see you. My heart skipped a beat. I grabbed my flashlight and stepped outside, shining its beam on the railing. There they were, those twin circles staring back at me, accompanied by something new, a piece of reflective material, torn and tattered, wedged into a crack in the wood. I felt a shiver crawl up my spine. This was no random act, no idle defacement. It was a message, a silent communication from someone, or something, that knew more than it should. I returned to the cabin, my mind racing. Could it be related to the woman's report? Or was it something else? Something born from the hidden corners of this vast, untamed land? I couldn't say, but the weight of the unknown settled over me like a shroud. I sat back down, my eyes now darting between the windows and the radio, the outside world, and my only link to human contact. I considered calling it in, reporting the new carving and the reflective scrap, but hesitated. What would I say? That I was spooked by a piece of cloth and some etchings in the wood. As I grappled with the decision, a sound broke the silence, a dragging noise, like something being pulled across the wooden floor above me. My blood ran cold. There was no floor above me, just the roof and the open sky. I gripped the arms of my chair, my knuckles white with tension. Whatever was happening, whatever was unfolding in the shadows of this ancient watchtower, it was clear that I was no longer the sole watcher in this wilderness. And as the night stretched on, I couldn't shake the feeling that those carved eyes were not just markings on a railing. They were a pair of lenses, and behind them lay a gaze that saw right through me. The night was settling in, a thick blanket of darkness that seemed to absorb sound as much as light. I sat there, my eyes straining to make out shapes in the gloom, my ears tuned to the subtlest of noises. The radio sat silent on the table, a mute witness to the tension that filled the cabin. Then it came, a creaking sound, low but distinct, rising from the wooden bones of the tower. It was the kind of noise you'd expect from an old structure, but this was different. It was as if the tower itself was shifting, adjusting its stance in preparation for something. I grabbed the walkie-talkie. Did anyone else hear that? I asked, my voice tinged with a nervousness I couldn't quite conceal. A moment of static, then a reply. Probably just the wind, or the tower settling. These old structures make noise. I wanted to believe it, to accept the simple explanation and return to my watch. But as I sat there, another sound reached my ears, a scraping noise, like wood being dragged across wood, coming from the stairs leading up to the cabin. My pulse quickened. I rose from my chair and cautiously stepped outside, flashlight in hand. I swept the beam down the stairwell, half expecting to catch a glimpse of something, someone lurking in the shadows. But there was nothing, just the empty stairs descending into darkness. I was about to turn back when my flashlight caught something on the railing, a fresh set of carved eyes, their gaze meeting mine as if challenging me to look away, and beside it, another piece of reflective material this one larger, as if torn from a piece of clothing. My mind raced, 
This was no coincidence, no trick of the light or the wind. Someone was out there, watching me, marking their presence in the most unsettling way. I retreated to the cabin, my back against the door as if that could offer some measure of protection. I considered my options. I could call for backup, but what would I report? Sounds, carvings, torn fabric? It was hardly enough to warrant an emergency response, yet every instinct screamed that this was anything but normal. I sat back down, my eyes now darting between the windows, each pane a potential entry point, each shadow a hiding place. I felt trapped, caught in a web that was tightening with every passing minute. I picked up the radio one more time. If anyone's near the Sentinel, maybe swing by, just to check things out, I said, my words a mix of request and plea. Will do, came the reply, but the words offered little comfort. As I set the radio down, Another creak echoed through the tower, this one louder, closer, as if whatever was out there had taken another step toward me. I gripped the arms of my chair, my senses on high alert, my body a coiled spring ready to snap, and in that moment I knew, with a certainty that chilled me to my core, that I was not alone. The tower, the sentinel, was living up to its name, but the question remained. Was it guarding me, or was it guarding something from me? The night was a tapestry of shadows, each one darker than the last, each one a potential hiding spot. My eyes were drawn to the windows, to the world beyond the glass that seemed both near and infinitely distant. I was a sentinel in a tower that had become a cage, and the bars were closing in. Then I heard it, a soft, deliberate footfall on the stairs below, followed by another, and another. Someone was climbing the tower, their movements slow and calculated as if savoring the ascent. At the same time, another sound reached my ears, a rustling from above, like fabric scraping against wood. My blood ran cold. I was trapped, sandwiched between two unknown entities, one ascending, one descending, both converging on my position. Adrenaline surged through my veins, drowning out reason, amplifying instinct. I had to act, and fast. I grabbed my boots and flung them onto a lower landing, their thud echoing through the wooden structure. Almost immediately, the footsteps below quickened, rushing downward to investigate the noise. Seizing the moment, I stepped out onto the landing, my heart pounding in my chest. With a quick glance up and down the stairwell to confirm I was alone, I climbed over the handrail and hung off the side of the tower, my fingers gripping the wood, my feet searching for purchase on the narrow ledge below. It was a desperate move a gamble that left me exposed to the elements and the sheer drop below. But it was also my only option, a Hail Mary in a game where the stakes were life and death. I hung there, my arms burning from the strain, my breath shallow and rapid. Time stretched, each second an eternity as I waited, listened, prayed. Then I heard it, the sound of footsteps returning, this time ascending the tower, but bypassing my position, the person or thing unaware of my precarious perch. I waited until the footsteps receded until I was reasonably sure I was alone, then pulled myself back onto the landing, my muscles screaming in protest. I didn't waste time. I sprinted up the stairs, taking them two at a time, my focus singular. Reach the cabin, secure the door, prepare for what comes next. I burst into the room and slammed the door shut, locking it and bracing it with the chair. I was back in my cage, but at least it was a cage with walls, a fortress however fragile. As I stood there, catching my breath, another sound filled the air. A low, guttural laugh, coming from just outside the door. It was a sound devoid of humor, 
a sound that promised things dark and terrible. And as I braced for impact, for the inevitable clash that would determine my fate, I realized the trap had sprung. But the question remained, was I the predator or was I the prey? And in the darkness of that moment, as the walls of the sentinel seemed to close in around me, I couldn't tell which was more terrifying. The air was thick with tension, each second stretching into an eternity as I stood there, my back against the door, my body a makeshift barricade. The laughter outside had ceased, replaced by a silence that was somehow even more unnerving. Then it came, the sound of footsteps, slow and deliberate, approaching the door. A moment later the handle jiggled, a soft, almost polite gesture that belied the menace behind it. I braced myself, my muscles taut, my mind racing through scenarios, each one darker than the last. The door shuddered as something, someone threw their weight against it. Wood creaked, metal groaned, and for a moment I felt the barrier give, felt the inevitability of what was to come. And then, as if summoned by the very gods of the wilderness, lightning struck. The world exploded in a flash of light and sound, a cataclysmic burst that shook the tower to its very foundations. I was thrown off my feet, my body airborne for a split second that felt like a lifetime, but as I hit the ground, I realized something miraculous. I was unharmed. In the chaos, I had instinctively moved to an insulated stool, a lone piece of rubber in a sea of wood and metal. It had saved me, shielded me from the electric fury that had engulfed the tower. I scrambled to my feet, my senses returning, my eyes adjusting to the darkness that had reclaimed the cabin. And as I looked out the window, I saw them, two figures, sprawled on the ground below, their bodies twisted in postures of finality. I grabbed the radio, my hands trembling as I keyed the mic. Emergency at the Sentinel, I gasped, my voice a hoarse whisper. Lightning strike, possible casualties, I need help. The response was immediate, a flurry of voices, of coordinates and protocols, a symphony of action that shattered the night's malevolence. And as I stood there listening to the cavalry mobilize, I felt something else, a sense of relief, of deliverance, as if the storm had been a judgment and I had been found worthy. It didn't take long for help to arrive, for the night to be pierced by the wail of sirens and the glare of headlights. I was escorted down the tower, my legs shaky, my soul lighter than it had been in hours. The two figures were indeed casualties, their lives extinguished in that fateful moment. And as I looked at them, as I saw the handcuffs that dangled from one's belt and the shiv that lay beside the other, I realized the depth of the peril I had been in. They were escaped convicts, men with nothing to lose, men who had seen in me an obstacle to be removed. As I sat in the ambulance, a blanket around my shoulders, a cup of hot coffee in my hands, I knew that this was my last night as a park ranger, my last night in a tower that had been both prison and sanctuary. And as I looked back at the sentinel, its timbers charred but standing, its presence as imposing as ever, I felt a strange sense of gratitude. For in that moment of chaos, of life and death, it had been more than a watchtower. It had been a witness. Days turned into weeks, and the events of that fateful night became the stuff of local legend, a tale told in hushed tones, a cautionary story that parents whispered to their children. The sentinel was repaired, its timbers replaced, its purpose renewed. But for me, there was no going back. I had handed in my badge, my uniform, my identity as a park ranger. The wilderness had shown me its face, 
both beautiful and terrible, and I couldn't unsee it. I took a piece of the charred wood from the tower before leaving, a memento not of what could have happened, but of what did. It sits on my mantle now, a silent reminder of the night when nature itself seemed to pass judgment, but as the days stretch into a semblance of normalcy, as the memories fade into the recesses of my mind, something else lingers, a question, a doubt, a shadow that refuses to be banished. It happened a week after the incident. I was at home, going through the motions of a life that had been irrevocably changed, when I received a package. No return address, no note, just a small box wrapped in plain brown paper. I opened it cautiously, half expecting to find something innocuous, something that would make me laugh at my own paranoia. But what I found inside made my blood run cold, a pair of carved wooden eyes, identical to the ones I had seen on the railing of the sentinel, accompanied by a piece of reflective material, torn and tattered just like the one I had found. I stood there, my hands trembling, my mind racing. Who had sent it? How had they found me? And what did it mean? As I grapple with these questions, as I lock my doors and check my windows and jump at every sound, another thought occurs to me, one far more terrifying than any I've had before. What if the storm wasn't a judgment but a reprieve, a temporary stay in a trial that is yet to conclude? What if the eyes that watched me, that watch me still, belong not to a human, but to the wilderness itself, a force ancient, relentless, and insatiable? And as I sit here writing these words, I hear it, a creaking sound, low but distinct, coming from outside my window. I want to believe it's the wind, or a stray animal, or my own imagination playing tricks on me. But as I look out into the darkness, as I see a shadow move where no shadow should be, I realize the truth. The watch is not over. It has only just begun. And the eyes that see me, that see into me, are not just watching. They are waiting, 